Well, this lecture is about what, how, and who public international law should regulate. New problems of global administrative governance. Uh, my name is Benedict Kingsbury. I'm a professor of international law at New York University Law School here in New York City. I'm from New Zealand, spent a long time teaching and studying in Oxford University. I've been based at New York University for more than 10 years. The aim here is to present some ideas of a, a new project which is based at NYU Law School but is, uh, involves many institutions around the world generating their own ideas. Uh, we call this project Global Administrative Law. And I hope in this lecture to sketch some of the ideas which are animating that project and which we believe uh, point to new issues for international lawyers to think about, to work on uh, new problems and new ways of managing, solving those problems uh, in the era of globalization. So our starting point here is that uh, as global governance becomes more and more dense, it comes to affect more directly the lives of individuals, of groups, of corporations, uh, and uses legal techniques for doing that so that the world of public international law is not simply the world of law made between states by their own will, public international organizations that the states create and still largely control. Uh, global governance is moving beyond that. And our idea animating this project is that we can think of a lot of global governance as being conducted through forms of administration. So that's the first animating idea. We can think about elements of global governance as being administration. Then with that idea, we think, well, what do we know about legal techniques for administration? So in many national systems, there's some kind of administrative law, which has grown up often around the control of public power, the control of what the government can do as it affects individuals and groups, corporations, uh, but also it's a way of organising and channeling public power. Often it helps in fact to magnify public power, to make the government more effective by operating in a regularised way uh, with some kind of checks and constraints on abuses so that the government can do what it's supposed to do effectively, people are more likely to accept it. And if there are abuses or mistakes or breaches of mandates, then there's a way of catching them through the legal system. So we have uh, within states uh, increasingly an idea of administrative law as a part of the whole system of government, a part of the organization of public power. We don't have that very much yet in global governance. So we have exercises of power beyond the state power which affects individuals, groups, corporations, uh, affects very much small states also. It often can be very unjust, the organisation and exercise of that power. There hasn't yet developed the set of ideas uh, which we have already in national administrative law. And our uh, proposal in this Global Administrative Law project is to try to look at some of the concepts which have developed nationally and to think about how they might work in the context of global governance. And the, the concepts I plan to introduce in a few minutes are accountability, participation, review mechanisms, uh, transparency, and reason giving. 
So five ideas, and it, the aim here is to look at how do those ideas already figure in global governance, uh, how could we make more of them, and what's the role of law and lawyers in them. Now this is a very new field, and there are elements of settled law, clear doctrine, but very much of it is in development. And there are a lot of areas where you might call it soft law, uh, normative ideas, people reasoning in legal ways, lawyers having a function, but it's not clear that that's hard law uh, at present. So th this way of looking at global governance provides a lens for understanding what goes on, for how power is exercised, how it could be channeled and managed, uh, ways that things could be made better, maybe ways that things could be made more just. Uh, and it, it's suggestive of the role of international law and the role of lawyers, uh, the role of national law, but also the role of legal thinking, legal type reasoning, even where it may not be clear that it's directly law that's involved. So in studying this field, there's a chance to become actively involved in making a difference to the way in which this set of ideas develops. These ideas, I think, are already very relevant in policy terms, very relevant to government officials engaged in international negotiations, relevant to groups who are trying to set standards, make decisions in global governance. And increasingly, the set of ideas is being applied uh, and adapted, borrowed uh, by lots of these different institutions of global governance. But it's a project which is in motion. The train has left the station, these things are happening, there's a lot of real practice in this area, but it's not yet coherent, it's not yet fully organised, uh, it needs a lot more conceptualisation, and the way in which it all works out will have a big impact on outcomes in global governance, on uh, who are the winners and losers, uh, and what the distributive effects are, what the improvements or uh, retardations of justice might be. So our uh, uh, advocacy here is for people to get involved in this around the world, to think about what's going on in these processes of global governance, to take a part, to study with the materials that are available, to think what the right concepts are, and to work on helping develop, apply, and reshape them. And that's the invitation which is involved uh, in entering this field of global administrative law. So the idea uh, here, global governance is a form of, uh, it can be understood as administration. Well, a first cut at, at giving some substance to this is to sketch five types of administration, which uh, is taxonomy, there's going to be a lot of blur in between them, but it's a way of understanding things that are already happening in global governance. And after I sketch these five types, I'll turn to talking about the, some of the administrative law ideas that I mentioned and how they already are being applied, might be further developed, in the context of these types of global governance. So, five types of administration that we see already in global governance. Well, first is uh, intergovernmental administration. Uh, that is uh, administration by traditional intergovernmental international organizations. Now, if we could take, it was one example, the UN Security Council. We think of that, rightly, as being a political body when the UN Charter was adopted in 1945, it was expected the Security Council will take decisions on vitally important political questions. But increasingly, the Security Council is getting involved in administration, uh, both making decisions affecting individuals directly and also setting rules, which are not uh, rules in a traditional form of treaty making or other formal legislation, but are rules of general application affecting lots of people. Something a bit like administrative uh, law rules are made in the United States and some other countries. So the Security Council as administrator 
is deciding uh, which individuals should uh, be listed by name uh, as people whose assets should be frozen because of suspicion they're involved in uh, financing of terrorism. Uh, the, the people on those lists uh, have their assets frozen around the world, have of course great difficulty in conducting ordinary life and increasingly some of those people are seeking to challenge those uh, listings and asking that they should be delisted. They say no I'm the wrong person or no I've reformed or make some other kind of argument. So there's pressure now on the Security Council to adopt some kind of administrative mechanism to enable those people to apply for delisting to have a chance for them to present their case, at least, uh, for reconsideration in the light of new evidence, uh, in a way which is at least somewhat transparent, somewhat open. Now, the, the pressure to do that is driven in part by a sense that it's normatively right, that people who are seriously affected as individuals by a decision ought to have some chance uh, to challenge it or to have it reviewed. Uh, they ought to have some opportunity to argue their own case. And that's a normative claim which is not built into the Charter and the way that Security Council's powers are defined, but increasingly people feel it's a part of the understanding of what is involved. If you exercise power you have to be willing to accept some kind of accountability, uh, some kind of relationship with people whose lives are directly affected by the exercise of power. So, so that's one example of intergovernmental organisations directly affecting individuals. Another is the work of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Uh, that office in many countries has the task of certifying who should have refugee status, which individual who applies refugee status should be granted that. Uh, and that's of course a legal decision. It's a decision which has a huge effect on the lives of the individual, generates the obligation not to return them to a place where they uh, have a fear of persecution. Uh, what is the basis for the exercise of that power? If the UNHCR says, no, we don't think you're entitled to refugee status, should the person have the ability to challenge that decision? Uh, what would be the process of appeal? Um, are they entitled to receive reasons when the, uh, the UNHCR makes that determination? Uh, and the, again, the structure of that is very much like an administrative law structure. So I've given two examples now of uh, intergovernmental organisations acting as administrators. Turning to the second category, this is uh, transnational networks of government officials exercising as a minister of power. Here the organisations may not be set up by treaty or the uh, interaction of the officials may not be uh, tightly defined by a treaty. They're not necessarily traditional public international organisations. They're networks of officials from states getting together to set policies uh, in areas of their own competence. So examples of this kind of network operation, well one is the Financial Action Task Force which brings together representatives from many countries to try to combat uh, money laundering, uh, to try to control terrorist financing and uh, certain other financial abuses. The Financial Action Task Force has a whole set of recommendations, as they put it, which countries are supposed to follow if they want to be participants in the international banking system and there's a structure in which the Financial Action Task Force can put a lot of pressure on states who are not members even of the task force, but to align their legislation, their control of money laundering, the requirement that people engaged in large cash transactions uh, be identified, uh, that bankers know their clients, uh, casinos, uh, antique dealers, uh, a lot of people uh, and businesses are subject to this kind of regulation and if a country does not uh, adopt the right rules and try to enforce them in its own 
banking and financial system, they risk being shut out of the global banking system. So there's a very strong pressure to align with this. There's an effective kind of sanction. There's a uh, regulatory relationship between the Financial Action Task Force and the different national players, including private players and uh, governmental agencies, going back and forward. The government will say, well, we've adopted this rule. The task force will say, well, that's not quite right. You need to modify it. You need to change the enforcement. You need to change the notification procedure. It's very much a regulatory process, but it's conducted here by a network. Now, there's not a treaty basis for the Financial Action Task Force directly. So, so that's one example. A uh, second example of a network of government officials exercising significant power affecting individuals and groups is the Basel Committee of Central Bankers. These are the representatives from each country's central bank which are responsible for supervising commercial banks based in that country. Uh, they set standards, for example, about capital adequacy, that is how much capital the bank has to have uh, in relation to the loans it has. And uh, the loans are calculated in terms of how risky they are, what are the chances of receiving repayment. So the Basel Committee has set uh, some complex capital adequacy standards for banks, for commercial banks, which are supervised by the national central banks. The decisions that the Basel Committee takes uh, have a significant effect on credit rating agencies and how they perform on availability of credit to particular kinds of groups, uh, on the supply of credit generally, on the degree of risk in a national banking system but also in the global banking system. So th those decisions taken in Basel have a direct effect on banks but also on the lives of individuals who might be borrowing or otherwise using financial services. Uh, the original process in Basel was very much a closed one, simply a discussion amongst the uh, central bankers. But as the Basel Committee has moved on uh, towards the, the Basel II process, it's made much more effort to consult people who are going to be affected, to invite comments on its proposed rules from banks, banking associations uh, and other interested groups. So they've adopted a notice and comment procedure, an element of transparency, they put a lot of materials on the website in advance, uh, an attempt to engage with the people who indirectly they are regulating. So we see uh, an administrative law type response here, even though it's not at all clear that there's any law which would require the Basel Committee to do that. They've thought that that's going to be a more effective way to organise their power, to, to be legitimate, uh, to avoid strong opposition, and perhaps that it's normatively right and required. So that's the second kind of administration. A third kind of administration is what we call hybrid public-private administration. Uh, this is where there's an exercise of power which is joint in some way between a public uh, organisation, typically a, a public intergovernmental organisation, and private actors. So for example, the World Health Organisation engages in public-private partnerships with organisations like the Gates Foundation in the United States, which is a very large funder of global public health initiatives. Uh, they work together, setting policies on particular issues, on combating uh, infectious diseases. Uh, other public-private partnerships might work on which uh, medicines should be required as uh, essential medicines, what's the right kind of drugs to make available to people with HIV, AIDS in different places. So a lot of important policy decisions are taken, perhaps in the field even decisions about who should be supplied with medication if they fail to take all of it or uh, for other reasons there has to be some kind of rationing. Some very important life and death decisions can be taken by this mixture of public and private bodies. 
and increasingly that's uh, a, a, a major form of global governance. It goes with the idea of privatization that often the private sector, whether, whether non-profit or profit-making private sector, can uh, help maybe do better even than public international organizations in delivering particular policies. Uh, but it raises a very uh, difficult challenges as to how that power should be accountable, who should be able to participate in its exercise and the transparency rules. A public international organization often has immunity, so there might be an ability of a, of a hybrid organization to try to benefit from that immunity. Uh, and on the other hand, private organizations often will claim commercial confidentiality and have understandable reasons for not wanting to be too transparent with things which their business rivals might want to uh, to, to use in business competition and so on. So the, the, how to strike that blend between the ordinary principles of, of public uh, agencies being transparent but perhaps immune, private agencies being non-immune but non-transparent, when you bring them together what mixture do you get and uh, how should the principles be defined uh, for controlling, uh, channeling, helping organise that kind of public-private power. Uh, the, the, the spectrum of public-private organisations uh, goes through eventually to a fourth kind of uh, global administration which is purely private administration conducted by private bodies, but which has tremendous effects on people's lives. So we can think, for example, of the International Olympic Committee. Uh, deciding where the Olympic Games should be held and where they will not be held has a huge effect on the economies of those countries, on opportunities for a lot of people. Uh, the decision process is one which has been worked out privately by the IOC and at times been criticised, occasionally been concerns about corruption and decision making. Um, we could say, well, that's purely private. There's nothing to say about that from a public international law standpoint. This is not, an, uh, it wouldn't be subject to administrative law domestically in some countries. Uh, in other countries domestically, a private exercise of a service which is of an essential public interest might be subject to some kind of public regulation. So supplies of electricity, of water supply to uh, people's houses, uh, of uh, telecommunications services, uh, other kind of services are often subject to a public regulation even though they're actually de delivered by private actors. So we get the same kind of problem now in global governance. What should be the principles uh, where the exercise of power is private but it clearly has public effect? And where's the line? And what point is it simply private? Is it simply a matter which international law would only marginally regulate, perhaps to prevent discrimination, things like that? Um, is, is it possible to specify in the abstract a line of things of public concern, an element of publicness, of engagement with the public sphere globally? But we don't have much consensus between different countries on what's public and what's private, and very little idea of how to form a single global view on what it means to be public. Is it the fact that it's a global public good, that there are externalities for other people, that there's something intrinsic about the kind of issue that means we should be concerned about it globally? So th 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 that spectrum, the hybrid public-private and the private administration, includes lots of organisations which are significant in global governance. The International Standards Organisation, for example, based in Geneva, has set somewhere around 15,000 standards, depending on how you count them. Uh, th these include design of safe products, uh, the way in which services are uh, delivered, uh, some standards about responsibility of organisations. Uh, their standard setting process has, has evolved over a long period, but it, it comes out of a tradition of having national standardization bodies setting product standards, uh, then getting together in this international organization uh, through technical committees, uh, agreeing on standards, which then become the global norm 
for what the, the proper design of a product should be, what, what software uh, uh, standard should be adopted, which helps other people develop their software or not. Uh, how a law firm organisation should be managed is often governed by ISO standards, the 9000 series, the 14000 series. So we see there a, a long development of a standard setting process, uh, but quite a difficult question. To what extent should administrative law setting norms apply? To what extent do they have to consult the people who they're going to affect before the standard is finally adopted? If there are winners and losers, they favour someone's standard and don't favour others. Uh, should, the, should the losers have a, a possibility of challenge, especially if they think there was bias or some other improper element in the decision process? And, that's an issue which the International Standards Organization is starting to grapple with, as are some of its member standard-setting bodies. And I give that as an example, one among many, where we see this kind of process going on. So I've now tried to sketch some uh, uh, four types of exercise of power uh, in the global public space, in what we might call the global administrative space. The uh, fifth kind of administration is very hard to specify, but the label we use for it is distributed administration. Distributed administration. And what we mean there is administration conducted by a national agency, that is a state agency, but pursuant to some kind of international agreement. Uh, and very often, for example, an environmental standard may be set in an environmental treaty, say the Montreal uh, Convention on Stratospheric Ozone Layer Protection, the administration of it is done by a national agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Minister of the Environment in, in different countries. Now, when a national agency is acting, but they're trying to implement an international policy, uh, there's uh, the, the potential argument that some particular kinds of administrative law standards should apply to that agency. Of course, they'll be subject to their own national administrative law, and, and that may be sufficient. But there may be arguments that they should meet further standards, they, that they take into account the interest of people in other parts of the world, for example, that they have a wider uh, a, a principle of availability of information, that they have a greater standing for people who are affected elsewhere in the world to get involved in perhaps even challenge a national decision on implementation. Uh, bearing in mind that if a state, for example, does not implement a standard which it is supposed to, it may have a serious cross-border effect on other people, or if it implements it in a particular way. So, we, we see the possibility of an international set of administrative norms being invoked uh, in relation to a national decision. But we also see the, the, the likelihood that national administrative law will be used to challenge what the national agency does, but in effect to challenge what the international body has decided. So a person who is affected by a national implementation of an international treaty standard uh, or a decision of a conference of the parties of an international treaty body might go to the national court and say, look, this, this decision was wrong. My interests weren't consulted. This was a biased decision taken internationally. I shouldn't now be subject to its implementation nationally in my own system. And if there seems to have been a real uh, breach of due process, a real denial of justice, uh, something grossly unsatisfactory about the international process, it can in effect be challenged indirectly uh, through national court processes. And we see this a little bit with people challenging the Security Council's listing of them and to have their assets frozen in the European Court of Justice and to potentially also in national courts, saying we understand the state is implementing an international decision, but we think the international decision was not a justified decision and didn't meet some standards of due process. So that's the 
fifth category, and it's a, a amorphous and complicated one, but a very important part of global governance, where national administration is tied to an international standard. So those are some forms of administration. Now, what do we know about accountability, uh, participation, review, uh, transparency, reason giving? Well, let me just make some brief remarks about each of these. Now, the idea of accountability is often used very loosely. It can mean accountability simply through damage to your reputation if you don't do what people think you should do. There can be a kind of market accountability where people will no longer buy your goods if they think that you're producing them in an improper way or they won't deal with you if they think you're unreliable. So then there's pure kind of political type accountability of uh, political opposition generating against an, an actor. So there are lots of ways of putting pressure on a particular actor who's exercising power. But it's probably more helpful, and this is what my colleague Professor Richard Stewart has argued, to narrow the concept of accountability a bit, uh, to try to apply it more specifically to situations where a, a, an identifiable individual or corporation or group uh, is able to call to account the uh, exerciser of power and to require them to give an account of the way in which they've exercised power, to, to explain what they've done, why they've done it, to defend it if necessary, and to trigger a process in which that decision can be reversed, in which there can be a sanction against the exercise of that power if it was done wrongly, or in which there can be compensation if someone has suffered from it. So if we take that stricter and more narrow view of accountability, there are still lots of ways of organising it. We can have uh, hierarchical accountability, where a superior body can reverse the decision of a, of a subsidiary body, for example, or, or to compensation. We can have a supervisory accountability, where there's a chain of, uh, of, of control, of observation. Uh, there could be an auditor or someone like that who says, well, the way you did this was not right, didn't meet the right standards. They have a supervisory role, even though it's not directly hierarchical over them. We can have electoral accountability, where whoever exercises power is free to do so, but if other people don't like it, they can vote them out of the next election. Very standard national democratic process. Of course, it applies to the heads of international organizations. The member states may vote them out next time around, and there are other electoral arrangements which can be a form of accountability. Uh, we can also have fiscal accountability. That is, the, the, the people who fund a decision maker may say, no, if, if you, you, you're not allowed to act this way. We won't fund you anymore if you do that. Uh, the cutting off the funds, the threat to do that, very familiar form of accountability. Uh, and finally, we can have legal accountability, where there's an organised institution which can review the exercise of power at the behest of the, the person to whom the account is owed and can uh, perhaps nullify it, or if not nullify it, can uh, issue other sanctions or at least can arrange for compensation. Uh, and, and that's uh, a, a narrower form. In global governance, we see a lot of accountability in some of the other forms, but very often international organisations and the international civil service uh, are accountable quite strongly to the member states, especially the most powerful member states. They are accountable financially through the ability to control payment of money. Sometimes governments don't pay money that they owe international organisations even. Uh, so, and, and there's of course a lot of control uh, politically, uh, which can be hierarchical or in other ways. So there's quite a lot of accountability of that sort in global governance. Uh, typically it's to the, the founders, the, the member states of organisations often, or the funders. So we can call it founders and funders accountability. There tends to be less accountability to the people who are affected by decisions. 
that is uh, who, people who may be abused by UN peacekeepers in the field, uh, people who are excluded by an international decision uh, which, which detrimentally affects them, people who don't receive uh, anti-malaria pills because of some decision they should be sent somewhere else. So th that kind of positive negative effect on people or failure to act for them uh, could potentially in national systems trigger accountability. It often doesn't exist when the exercise of power is in global governance. So increasingly the question is, should there be legal mechanisms which will help to rectify that, to overcome the problem of disregard? Now th this is not a straightforward question. Th there is a tendency towards juridification. Of course, human rights tribunals can provide some element of that, although the jurisdiction is mainly over states rather than over international bodies. Uh, national courts can provide it reaching into global governance on some occasions. And there are more and more specialised tribunals, such as investor state tribunals, um, which can uh, hear claims by foreign investors that a state has uh, wrongly treated their investment. So that tendency to juridification is producing more and more structures of legal accountability, but they're still very patchy. Most of the time it doesn't exist, it's not very robust, but it's a big policy question, should there be more of it? Is that a good direction to go? Is that becoming the norm? Should it be the norm? Uh, and here, of course, there's a strong legal tendency to want to say yes, that there should be more juridification, that if these tribunals become routine, they'll operate better, there'll be more uh, cross-fertilization of decisions, a deeper quality of decision-making, better alignment uh, of the decision-making systems with global politics. But there is, of course, no global state. There's not a global democracy. There's nothing like a legislature. There's not the capacity of, of political control, which you have of political control of, of the law in most countries, political control even of the courts in very high stakes cases. So juridification uh, is an important direction. It can help promote rule of law, but it's more complicated to do it where there's not the rest of the structure of a political system, uh, of a way of, of asserting values, of enabling people to make decisions through democratic processes. So juridification probably has to go with some kind of increasing organisation of a global public consciousness, an organisation of a global political sphere, which the uh, international judiciary is connected in some way, um, and in which there's the ability to set global policies, uh, but uh, also with a uh, deepening structure of international institutions, with institutional differentiation, a strong sense of what the roles are. Uh, and th that's a very difficult set of things to do, to build a, a, enough of a sense of a global public sphere, of a public ness, of a, of a fair system of participation and of who gets to control what the policies are which are pursued there in which the international judiciary might be advancing. Uh, and at the moment there's a tendency for that to be dominated from some parts of the world and for other parts to be rather uninfluential in that process. And the major question is how to uh, transform that, how to make it more truly global perhaps more democratic even. But it's a very challenging set of problems and it's sometimes a little naive to be enthusiastic simply about courts and juridification on their own. Uh, nevertheless, there is important scope for that and it's clearly part of the process. It goes along though with the question of institutional design in particular of decision rules because you can have the possibility of review of reconsideration of decisions but it's often more important to, to affect the way the decisions are made in the first place. To, to set rules about who can participate in a decision. Uh, is it simply going to be states getting together and deciding? And what are the systems of who really decides amongst those states? Is it a few powerful states? Uh, is it done in blocks? Is it a consensus-based system? But in particular, how to bring into that decision-making structure other interests to give them a voice? 
Now, the International Labour Organization does this uh, through having trade unions represented and employers represented directly in the system along with states. So it's possible to use that kind of corporatist model of bringing in representatives of key interests, key stakeholders, bringing them together. But in a global public sphere, we might want people who aren't stakeholders. We might want people who simply have a normative view of what should be there. Not, not a direct interest, but uh, nevertheless ought to have a voice. Uh, we also could have concern that trying to bring all the stakeholders in will lead to a paralysis. So the, so the question of sophisticated institutional design of an organization of global politics and juridification uh, all go together in developing ideas of accountability. And we have to be very alert that accountability, if over-dramatized, can lead to stasis. It can discourage people from taking risks, from doing things. It can tie up whole systems in review of what was done before uh, and fail to innovate, fail to address the pressing global problems which can be uh, developing very quickly, often at overwhelming speed and with limited capacity to deal with them. So there are delicate balances to be struck and that's an area where serious work continues to be needed. So from accountability turn now to participation. Well, participation always sounds like a good thing, uh, but at the same time we can see a huge hazard of too much participation and that there has to be an economy of effective participation. Uh, it's not realistic to imagine that uh, organizations, uh, states, groups, exercising global power are going to want to radically transform the decision rules about that power. The, the, the positive political theory usually won't support that. So that dramatically changing participation so all the affected interests are involved or so that there's a something more equivalent to a global democratic process to something like the role of a legislature and the electorate in many national systems uh, is an aspiration but it seems a very very long way away. So in practice a lot of the discussion of participation is in a more attenuated form and uh, in particular the idea of notice and comment where rules are going to be made which will affect particular groups or individuals to let them see a draft first, to hear their voice on it and to have some system of engaging directly in, in a discussion and deliberative process with those groups uh, so there has to be a response to them, not simply a pro-formal consultation which makes no difference. So, so that's one form of participation. A second form is, is at the retail level, that is the level of the individual who's, who's directly suffered from something. If they can challenge that through a legal process or even a political process to have some sort of reconsideration, uh, that can be a form of participation for them, which enables a, a particular affected interest to be taken account. It, it doesn't change the wholesale, it doesn't change the policies, the, the, the treaties, the, the big norms, but it can do justice in individual cases. And we see more and more mechanisms in international uh, organizations and other forms of global governance which are designed to do that. So the World Bank has an inspection panel where if people think of, that they've suffered because a bank policy was not properly applied, they can go to the inspection panel which can investigate that, take the issue up with the bank's management. Other development banks have adopted the same kind of thing. Uh, some bodies have ombudspersons, uh, which in, in, in some situations can take up a case without legal powers, but as a way of giving a kind of representation, an element of voice. And the, the, uh, there's a tendency for private organizations even to do that. So the anti-doping system, uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, where an athlete is suspected of being taking substances which are prohibited. Uh, there has to be two samples, the athlete receives notice, the second sample is tested, eventually there's an appeal system for the International Court of Arbitration for Sport. There's a structure where the athlete can challenge, uh, exercise voice there rather than simply be judged without any kind of recourse and we see more and more of that. So there are those uh, more attenuated forms of participation developing in global governance. 
Uh, turning now to the question of re review mechanisms. Well, uh, the, the, the legal form of review mechanisms, that is uh, a court system, uh, say the World Trade Organization system of a panels, then an appellate body to review them, uh, the human rights courts, uh, the structures for investment disputes. Uh, th there are more and more of those. So we can have uh, the, the, the possibility of a legal type review, but we also have sort of quasi-legal review. The, the World Bank Inspection Panel, the ombudspersons, uh, those kind of examples. Uh, there's also bodies which may be essentially political but still take a second look and uh, provide another chance for a discussion about the issues and that can be important. So the, the, we, we see a, a pattern of review uh, developing but uh, again the lack of a general theory about what are the proper designs of appellate level jurisdiction, uh, what, what should be their functions, is it simply to address the case which is in the past, are they a form of governance going forward, should they make policies, should they play a role making law the way courts do in many countries, and some countries acknowledge, some countries not acknowledge, should the international judiciary do that, uh, should political bodies uh, have that kind of review function also. Uh, Will the decision rule shift if there's a two-level decision-making system? So there's, there needs to be an integration of positive political theory, there's a, what's going to really be done, and normative theory. What, what's attractive? What makes sense? What's going to be effective? What will lead to stasis? What will be, be paralyzing? Uh, and who controls those processes? Where, where's the voice in all of those things? So the, the, a further complicated issue in global governance of review is where many different agencies have some competence on an issue and they may be acting in different directions uh, on the same issue. So we may see an issue of trade and environment. The World Trade Organization is taking it up, so also is an international environmental body, perhaps even a human rights body is involved in it. Uh, so there's this, the question of allocation of competence. Who should be deciding those things? Uh, a concern that increasingly the most powerful bodies like the World Trade Organization may acquire more and more competence because they have more capacity and more power, more impact on situations, but that might come at a cost. Their decision rules, their community of expertise may be more narrow, for example. So we see another layer of, of, of the possibility of review of some sort of separate body which can decide on allocation of competences, or at least a separate set of norms which will govern allocation of competences amongst global decision-making bodies. And more and more, I think we see a global administrative law beginning to play that function. But again, it's not yet very well theorized. The way in which it works out in the future will have a huge effect on who are its winners and its losers. Now, fourth, uh, transparency. Here we see, a, I think, an outgrowth of democratic jurisprudence of a sense that, that governments and exercising uh, public power ought to be transparent on, on many issues, not on all of them, not of course on some security things, not on negotiations, there are areas of privacy of, of important reasons to keep things confidential, but that many kind of government deliberations, uh, decision processes and decisions should be public. Uh, and simply the possibility that people can know them is a form of control and it's also a form uh, of the basis of a form of participation. So there are strong arguments for transparency. Uh, the, the global governance has been somewhat slow to adopt it, but we see more and more organizations, public, hybrid, and private doing that. Uh, what we don't have yet is a very sophisticated theory on transparency and its limits. And in particular on the effect of transparency, which can sometimes be to increase the influence of uh, particular stakeholders at the price of others who may know less about it, who may be further away. Often people in developing countries may have less ability to access the information, less epistemic expertise to evaluate it, to intervene, to try to change outcomes, especially on very technical issues. And the people with expertise may be the big players, uh, the dominant f figures in the industry, who can benefit from transparency and participation by simply getting more of what they want uh, in the decision process. 
Uh, finally, reason giving. Uh, so here we have the important question, to what extent should global governance bodies give reasons for their decisions? Uh, a striking feature of some common law countries, uh, English law for example, is that there is not a generalised requirement of public authorities to give reasons. Uh, it's not even always required that courts, that lower courts give reasons, although more and more that's required by international human rights standards. So there, there is not a, a global pattern of having to give reasons for decisions. And although the, the appeal of rationality of reason giving is very strong, uh, th there's some resistance that it may compromise the process of politics, of simply getting things done. Different states, different representatives might vote for a measure for different reasons. The reason may be incompatible, but still there's a decision, and getting a decision is often important. We don't mind if a legislature has many different people in it who have different arguments for why they want to do something. And there may be incompatible arguments. Still, they take the decision, it's decided. So reason giving, in the sense of a single unified persuasive set of reasons, can obstruct complex political processes. On the other hand, where we don't have electoral legitimation, we don't have an, a, a, a truly democratic basis for appointing authorities in global governance, giving reasons can be a substitute. It can be a form of persuasion. It can show that the interests were properly taken into account. Uh, it can persuade people to buy into it, to accept the decision. Say, well, I didn't like it, I lost from it, but at least I understand it. It was reasonable. And if there's going to be a review mechanism, there often have to be reasons in order to review whether the reasons were justified. So we see normatively more and more of a demand for that kind of reason giving. Well, I've now run through some of the areas of, of developing practice in global governance. Uh, we see that some of them are driven by treaty standards, requirements of access to information in the Aarhus Convention, uh, requirements of the European Convention on Human Rights and other human rights treaties, uh, that courts give reasons that there be due process in various kinds of tribunals. Uh, so some of them have a treaty basis, a few of them may have a customer international law basis, some of them may be general principles of international law, some of them may be simply necessitated by that way of doing things. If you're going to take this kind of administrative decision to act in this kind of way, you really have to give some kind of notice to the people you affect, for example. So, uh, and some of them may simply be, at the moment, forms of policy and contested policy at that. And the question of will they become normative, will they be binding, uh, are they best practices, could there be other ways of doing it, how do they, these pieces all fit together uh, as a part of the struggle about uh, to what extent this whole set of developing norms will be formally part of international law as opposed to simply a part of the toolkit of the well-trained international lawyer now. Thank you very much.